0: Paul Burdine is going to share. And I just want to say it's good to have Joey back. She's going to be ordained at this district council Wednesday night, so we're going to have a good time with that. Uh, Some of you remember Doug Blakeney and Sally and Sarah. Uh, Won't you stand up, Doug? They're part of our church now and moved to this area, so let's just welcome them. And he's going to be preaching uh, on a Wednesday next month in May. That's a preaching machine right there. I love to hear Doug preach. Um, last week, I, I spoke on the great debate, and I'm just kind of continuing a the theme on the word great. Um, what a great heritage we have. I'm going to be talking about the heritage that we share um, and and kind of piggyback off of last week on the great debate the the struggle that the church has always had in dealing with heresy and and from from the inception it's dealt with it it's had challenges the apostles had to deal with it every generation practically from the apostles has had to deal with things that would come up that would be a distortion of the gospel or. You know, some people didn't like this part of the Scripture, and they introduced uh, spurious works as, as Scripture, so we, have, we had to have a canon that come together. That says, what, what are the inspired contributions uh, to the Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament? Um, so we've had this challenge from the get-go. It's always going to be here with us. Pentecost, though, was the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. That is across the board... Uh, recognized by all kinds of scholars, that the church was birthed on, in Acts 2. And this is Luke's sequel to the first book that he wrote, which is the account of the gospel of Jesus, his ministry. Luke writes a second book to the same person, Theophilus. Some people thought, well, if that's a, an, an exact individual, because it means a lover of God, someone who's a lover of God. But the first chapter, I'm just going to summarize the first chapter. Then we're going to read from chapter 2 if you want to turn there. First chapter is Jesus repeating his final mandate to his followers before he leaves them, before he ascends up into heaven in front of them. And so he repeats this mandate to them with them standing out on the Mount of Olives. And he tells them that what he wants them to do is go back into Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. And chapter 1 continues on as to how they did that. They did make their way to Jerusalem. They found a large room. They congregated in that room for several days. Uh, They prayed. They fasted. They also selected a replacement for Judas, did a little business meeting there. And they prayed and fasted and waited. And when Pentecost was just around the corner the next day, that's when it all exploded in Acts 2. About 9 o'clock in the morning, the room was filled with the sound of a rushing wind. Let's just begin reading with Acts 2, verse 1. It goes like this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, Now, I want you to see the explosion of sensory phenomenon here. They heard a sound of a mighty, rushing, violent wind pour into the room where they were sitting. They saw clusters of tongues come into the room and begin to separate, and tongues began to land on each Person there, they saw this. This was not just something that someone in a vision saw. This was actually happening. The wind was actually happening. They heard, all of them heard this violent wind that came into the room. They saw these tongues separate as they came and landed on each of them. And it says all of them began to speak in other tongues. Glossi is the the exact word. Unlearned, untrained tongues. Languages that they did not know. Specific languages, as you were to find out later on in Acts 2, because while they were languages the speakers didn't know, there were languages that people out in the streets knew, which was part of the phenomenon as well. But you think about it. Here's 120 people, and they heard, they saw and they spoke and it says they spoke in these other languages as a spirit enabled them or gave them the utterance the impetus to speak these languages now i'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this this morning but i want you to i want you to see that everything that we believe everything that we practice should have a sound biblical foundation And there'd be people probably more comfortable if Acts 2 was not in the Bible because it poses a challenge for us. It poses a challenge for a lot of people. All the people gathered that day in that room, all 120 people, each of them heard the sound, each of them saw these tongues, fire tongues come and land on the head of each of them, And they all spoke in other tongues. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was in that group. She spoke in tongues. All of the apostles were there. They spoke in tongues. All of the spouses that were there, they spoke in tongues. All the children that could have been there, they spoke in tongues. Not a single person, not one person was left out of that experience. Isn't that amazing? Now, here's the question. Could some of them resist it? Probably. But why? I mean, (laughs) they had waited for several days for this, so, you know, you've already got an investment of time. But you also have this word from the Lord, direct word from the Lord, to wait until they had been endued with power from on high. We don't know uh, that anyone could have said, I just want to be left out of this experience. The thing is, no one was left out. And this was not a school of the prophets. This was not an advanced Bible college class. This was 120 people made up of the leaders that Jesus had chosen, but people who were not leaders that Jesus had chosen. But they were all there, and they all were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, how much should this have continued through the church age, through the ages to come? Now, we know that Saul of Tarsus, who was the chief nemesis of the church, a persecutor of the church, had this uh, miraculous encounter with the Lord, transforming him, and uh, he ends up getting saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. And we know from what he tells the church at Corinth that that speaking in tongues and praying in tongues and singing in tongues was a part of his private life, very much a part of his life. We know that Peter was in the upper room and that he spoke in tongues, and then it was Peter who's preaching to Cornelius in Acts 10 later on to a, a Gentile congregation, a Gentile family there, that he really did not want to be there. But the Lord was showing him that the promise that he gave to those in the upper room was also for Gentiles. Because right in the middle of his preaching, you know, Alvin, you said the Holy Spirit doesn't interrupt himself, so you know, maybe that's one time the Holy Spirit interrupted Peter. Because <laughs> right in the middle of his preaching, here goes Cornelius and everybody in the house start speaking in tongues. All of them. And it, it just blew these guys away, Peter and his friends that he went with him like, oh, what... It must be that God has them in mind, too, that he's not leaving them out either. And then you have, later on, Paul visiting the leaders in the church at Ephesus, and he asked them about, have they received this infilling of the Holy Spirit? Even in Samaria, when there was a great response to the gospel, the 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 leadership in Jerusalem sent apostles up to lay hands on them that they might be filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and it happened. The Samaritans were filled with the Holy Spirit. What happened after that first generation? What happened to speaking in tongues? What happened to this phenomenon? I want to take you to a couple of people here in just a moment. Let me just mention remember, last week we talked about some of the church fathers. You had John who uh, lived way into his, uh, he he died of natural causes, the only apostle that was not martyred. It wasn't because they didn't try to kill him. They did try to kill him. They put him in a pot of boiling oil, and he survived it. So it wasn't because they, they didn't try to kill him. God just had a purpose for him and caused him to survive. But when John discipled Polycarp, Polycarp lived to be 86, and he was martyred in 155 A.D. as an old man. And then he discipled a main name, Irenaeus. You remember my reference to Irenaeus? Well, I'm going to show you a slide here about Irenaeus. Now, I don't know how in the world they knew how Irenaeus looked, but that's a, that's a drawing of Irenaeus. Irenaeus wrote in his book against heresies, and you remember that he was one of those, was principally involved in trying to ward off corruption in the church and the corruption of doctrine. But here's something Irenaeus wrote, and I put part of it up here. I'll read the whole quote. In like manner, do we also hear many brethren in the church who profess, who possess prophetic gifts, and who through the Spirit speak all kinds of languages, tongues, and bring to light for the general benefit the hidden things of men, and declare, and declare the mysteries of God, whom also the apostles term Spiritual. This is a man that's one generation removed from John, talking about that these are still practiced among the believers. Let me take you to the next slide of a man by the name of Tertullian, and you'll see that he was he was practically uh, right behind um, Polycarp and was a contemporary part of the time. And I kind of like Tertullian's picture a little bit better than than Irenaeus. Uh, I don't even know if they. These are just suggestions how these people looked or somebody just, like, sketched it and people copied it. But he was born in 160 and lived to be 220. He lived in Tunisia, Carthage, uh, which is only, as, as the crow flies, as they sort of say, about less than 400 miles from Rome. So here, here's a man that uh, was dramatically converted. He was not a priest he never regained, they were never designated him as a saint because he was not a priest, but he was dramatically converted. Now, while he lived in North Africa, it's more than likely that he was in an aristocratic kind of family, maybe a Roman, his dad might have been a Roman uh, governor of that area. So he was more Roman than he was Northern, Northern Africa. But he was so, he was so radically changed by the transformation that happened to him, watching believers in the Colosseum dying bravely for their faith, that he became a born-again believer, radically changed. And he would—he was the one that confronted Marcion. And there's part of this quote that uh, he challenged Marcion: "If you're going to be a legitimate person in the in the Church of Jesus Christ," he challenged him with these words: "Let." Let him exhibit prophets such as have spoken, not by human sense, but with the Spirit of God, such as have predicted things to come and have made manifest the secrets of the heart. Let him produce a psalm, a vision, a prayer. Only let it be by the Spirit in an an ecstasy, that is, in a rapture, whenever an interpretation of tongues has occurred to him. So, There were still messages in tongues and interpretation of tongues during Tertullian's time of being a church leader. He is, in fact, probably the original Protestant. He, He did not kind of fit in with everything, and he kind of disrupted people's ideas, but he was passionate for the things of God and that the church should be alive in the Spirit of God. Let me take you to a third slide, and this is Augustine. Augustine lived from 354 to 430 A.D., and he is one of the most cherished writers in church history, one of the great leaders in church history. He, too, is from northern Africa. You know, it's just kind of when I study this and I see the great leaders of the early church that came out of North Africa, and to see now North Africa just completely swallowed up by Islam, it saddens me. But also stirs in me that there's there's got to be some seeds there still left. That the church has been there before and it's had great leaders, fearless leaders. And may God raise up North Africa again as a mighty place for his kingdom. But Augustine said this. We still do what the apostles did when they laid hands on the Samaritans. And that's a reference in Acts and call down the Holy Spirit on them by the laying on of hands, it is expected that converts should speak with new tongues. This is a few years after the book of Acts. And what can we say about these men, the leaders in the church, scholars, writers? When you look at Augustine's uh, 354 is when he was born, that's 350 years after Christ's birth, ministry, death, And resurrection, and yet here's what Jesus told these hundred and twenty people to wait. It's still going on. He's still pouring out his spirit. But then something happened called the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages brought a time of spiritual drought, of coldness, and there was a system put in place that suffocated study of God's word. And the Dark Ages was exactly that. It was the Dark Ages in every sense of the word, including spiritual. But there was a contraption that was created called the printing press. And the printing press was designed to print copies of Scripture on a much faster basis so that the Word of God could get in the hands of the common person. And the Word of God is a dangerous thing to put in the hands of common people. Because then they start believing it. They're reading it for themselves, and they're seeing what happened in Acts. And then you had people like John Huss and Martin Luther, who was part of this reformation that was taking place, all because Luther translated the Bible into German, and, and Wycliffe translated the Bible first time into English, and and all of a sudden people started, and they, and they would hunt down these copies of Scripture, unauthorized translations of Scripture, and sometimes kill the people who did it if they could find them and burn all the copies. It shows you the power of God's Word when it gets in the hands of people. To just simply believe what God tells you in His Word. And so you had Tyndall and Wycliffe and the, these, these people who were movers and shakers. There was two great awakenings that took place in America. Uh, One, the first great awakening had to do with Jonathan Edwards. George Whitefield came over here to preach. John Wesley came over here to preach. And there was a move of God. Jonathan Edwards considered probably the greatest theologian that's ever come out of American history. Incredible man of God. And yet, during that time, we had another law. And then around 1800, there was a second great awakening. And if you want something to study, just pull up the Cane Ridge Revival in Kentucky, and you'll find one of the most marvelous outpouring of God's Spirit that's ever taken place. People awaken. There was an awakening to the presence of God. And I can tell you, this nation's had revivals. But we need a third great awakening. We're in desperate need of another revival and not a regional revival like Brownsville. And we're going to get to Azusa Street in just a moment because that's that's what the title of this message is, is, is Azusa Street. But we are in desperate need of a revival. We're in desperate need of experiencing revival and not just talking about revival. It's like we are in desperate need of prayer not talking about prayer. We're in desperate need of knowing Jesus in an intimate way, a personal way. I can tell you that everything starts with a hunger. Nothing happens in our lives spiritually without hunger, not curiosity. Curiosity does not bring anything lasting into a person's life. But when you get desperate, just like the song we were singing Jesus, I'm desperate for you. When you become desperate, when we become hungry for God, when we're pressed, when we feel like we can't go on, that we can't just go on the way we are, God will begin to move in our lives. And it starts with that hunger, it starts with that thirst. Let me take you a little bit into the turn of the century. Isn't it interesting that in 1801 was the Cane Ridge Revival? And these people, these people come under such conviction, they would fall out on the ground in in this rural Kentucky. People were in wagons coming. There was thousands of people. And they would fall out on the ground crying, weeping, repenting. And there's one story about a seven year old girl that was on the shoulders of her dad that began to preach and began to tell people about the, the things of God and, and to try out to God and, and she preached until she kind of faded on the shoulders of her dad and someone said oh that poor child needs to lay down and rest, she's exhausted herself she alive and back up and says don't call me poor because I am rich in the grace of God and here's a seven year old Telling this, the blood of Jesus has made me rich in Him. Don't call me poor, I'm perfectly fine. And then, a hundred years later, on January the 1, 1901, in Topeka, Kansas, Charles Parham, who had, had a Bible college, and he had started teaching that there was something about the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And he hadn't experienced it. He, didn't, he just know, knew that it was in the Bible. He hadn't experienced it himself. But he started teaching these students. And over the Christmas break, some of them decided they would not go home, that they would spend Christmas break in prayer and seeking God. And on January 1, an 18-year-old student by the name of Agnes Osman was the first person in that group that spoke in tongues. She spoke in tongues for the first time, and she was the first person she's ever heard speak in tongues. It was her. No one else had heard in that Bible school. Anyone happened. It was, it was not heard of. And it just started kind of spreading. And Charles Parham started venturing out. He It was a while before he experienced it. But it was a confirmation that this was something true. This was something that was given to the church. It was not supposed to be relegated to a time in the past. And there's no place in Scripture, no place in Scripture, friends, where it says that this was done away with when the apostles died. That's a common thing, but there's no place where it says that. Or when the canon of Scripture was completed that it was no longer necessary. But this was something, and and it was rebirthed in the church at the turn of the century. Charles Parham started venturing out, holding revivals and teaching this. And I don't know how long it was before he experienced it himself. But in Houston, he came across a holiness preacher by the name of William Seymour. And William Seymour was an African-American holiness preacher And he started attending the classes and he started believing that there must be something called the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. But he hadn't experienced it either. But he started believing it. So he was invited to go to preach in a Nazarene church in Los Angeles, California that a woman, Sister Hutchinson, was the pastor. And he got up and preached there was something called the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And they booted him out of the church. This <laughs> is we don't believe that. And so here he was stranded from Houston trying to figure out how to get back, back to Houston. He was not well received in Los Angeles. And a family, the Asbury family, Richard Asbury and his family lived on Bonnie Bray Street. And they took the stranded preacher in and said, you can stay with us for a while. Well, they kept up their Bible study and preaching. In April of 1906, the first person that I think he saw filled the Holy Spirit was in Bonnie Bray House. And, the, and, and, the, and people started coming, and more people started getting baptized in the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, and moved out into the front yard And into the street, they couldn't get everybody into that little residence. And as the street filled up with people, as he would come out and hold services, they decided they needed to find a larger place. And on the screen is 312 Azusa Street. Something about William Seymour that is very special. He lost an eye through a disease early in his life, but he was passionate for the things of God and for three years, it's on the screen, from 1906 to 1909, from April of 1906. And by the way, the great San Francisco earthquake took place right before the spirit fell on Bonnie Bray residence. The interesting thing about Zusa Street is that people came from miles around. And these dots connect... Just like Polycarp connected to Irenaeus, Irenaeus, on down to uh, Augustine, on down through church history. All of us, all of us are connected in the body of Christ. We're connected to every generation in the body of Christ. And William Seymour was connected to Charles Parham. And here William Seymour, he experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. A church was planted. But this is what amazed the, the, the people of Los Angeles. Is it crowded into that abandoned, it used to be a Methodist church and then it was a warehouse and it was even a stable, but it was abandoned when they moved into that building and cleaned it up and started having nightly services. There was a mixture of every every race of people in Los Angeles. Coming in there, not much preaching, it was more praying, singing, and God moving by his spirit filling people up with a baptism in the Holy Spirit. People would leave that, that Azusa Street, get on a train, find their way to New York and get in line to buy a ticket by faith to go somewhere in the world to be missionaries. They went to China, knew nothing about China, knew no one there, but they were called of God, and it just kind of spread Globally. But what most people don't realize is one of the principal people in the revival of Azusa Street was Pastor Joseph Smell of First Baptist Church of Los Angeles. He had went to the Welch Revival in 1904, got so moved of God, came back and started. He, 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 First Baptist Church became a New Testament church is what they said. They had prayer meetings and people congregated on the steps of that church waiting for someone to open the door so they could get in and have prayer meetings. And Joseph Smell's church and Joseph Smell was an integral part of Azusa Street. Now listen to me just for a moment. In Birmingham, there's a a great college. It's a small college, but Sanford University is a great college. And on that campus is a divinity school called the Beeson Divinity School. And I've been in, in the chapel with the beautiful dome, and I've heard lectures there and ministers there. But it's, it's, the architect is just phenomenal. In fact, you can go to Beeson Divinity School website, and they got three different videos that they show you how that dome was painted. They've got a depiction of Jesus with his hands reached out, with the nail scars in his hands, with the faces all behind him, a cluster of faces like surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And around the outer edge of that dome are 16 characters from church history. One of them is Augustine. One of them is Athanasius. Do you remember Athanasius? the little North African guy they called the black dwarf, he's up there. And for all the church history goes around and guess who else is up there? William Joseph Seymour. From the Pentecostal persuasion of preaching and they make no excuse about it in a Baptist seminary that this man was mightily used of God. And here's what I want to ask you. What kind of life does Christ call us to? What kind of life does he want us to have? I don't see anywhere in Scripture that the journey of believers is to be an okay life or a good life. I think it's supposed to be more than that. I think it's supposed to be like abundant life. I think it's supposed to be filled with wonder and mystery. I think it ought to be filled with that that causes us to have a greater taste of the glory of God. I believe He's calling us to an abundant life, rich in mercy, rich in grace, empowered by the Spirit of God, passionate and faith directed. I don't believe we're to live casually for the kingdom of God. We're to live passionately for the kingdom of God. I don't want to leave you with a history lesson here about church history. But what I want to say to you, I want to invite you to be part of the history. Part of the new history. Part of what God wants to do in 2016. Can you believe this month is the 110th anniversary of Azusa Street? over a hundred years Now, I was raised in a Pentecostal church I was I, I didn't know there was any other kind my mother was filled with the Holy Spirit before I could remember my dad was saved before I could remember even though I was a toddler when he got saved and in our house there was two on fire flaming Pentecostal parents and there was prophetic gifts operating in their lives. Especially my mother. She discerned everything. I think the Lord showed her everything I ever did wrong. <laughs> you know, it was, it, was, it, was, it was stacked against us. You know, they were in there praying, and God was showing them what we was doing. But th- there was nothing. And yet, here's my wife. She has a whole different background. Sweet little missionary Baptist church piano player, thrust into activity and duty at the age of 12, what you could play like a couple of songs, attempted anyway, but they needed a piano player, and her mother volunteered her, and she played, and her daddy was not really one to get over into those crazy Pentecostal churches, even though her mother had a background in that, and she ended up going to revival with her sister. They were teenagers at the Assembly of God Church. This is Assembly of God Church, right? And they went down and they had an altar call and some people passed out. And Brenda looked around and says, These people care nothing about these people passing out. No one's checking on them. And her daddy walked into the meeting. Was he selling cookware at the time? And he was a little concerned that the meeting was going a little too long. And he really wasn't convinced that there was any validity to being filled with the Holy Spirit. But it isn't just like God that he walked into the back of that sanctuary just in time to hear both of his teenage daughters speaking in tongues. He kind of gave in and says, Well, Joyce, I guess you can take him to a Pentecostal church since they're now Pentecostal. It was the confirmation of God in his life, and they didn't know anything about it. It just ambushed them. Now, all of us in this room were like, I want to be ambushed. So we're, you know, I don't have any control over what's going on. But we're all going to have control. Here's what I I want Brandon to come. I I want to ask you, Where is the fullness of the Spirit in your life? I wanted to mention this, and I I didn't want to misquote it, but I think it fits. D.L. Moody heard a a man challenge people in England. He said, the world is yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. And Moody says, I want to be that man. I want to be that man. I want, I want to be as fully. And this is, what I'm, this is what I want to pose to you. Do you want to be completely surrendered? A completely surrendered vessel to the Lord? Not 90%, not 70 not... Just be completely surrendered to Him. Is that what you want? I thought it was perfect song, sit, standing in the back knowing what I was going to share, until you and I are one. Until you, Jesus, and I are one. Do, do you want, I think I posed this to Brenda the other day, I, says, I wonder what it would look like for us to experience the full favor of God in our lives. I don't even think, we, I've, I've been close to that. But I I want to get a little bit of a glimpse of what it's like to be in the full favor of the salvation of the Lord and what he's has for me. And I want to invite you to be refreshed in the Holy Spirit this morning. To be ready to be filled. I asked her before I got up to preach, she said, you ready to get filled? Yeah, Ready. Are you ready to be filled? Stand with me.